0: Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Bible is the most significant book in the Western canon. It's also the book upon which the post-antiquity Western civilization was built upon, including the exploring and settlement of North America by European nations. Let's delve into the origins of this immensely important and influential book which inspired early generations of men and women to cross a perilous ocean with their few belongings, hopes, dreams, and determination. They traveled to the shores of North America for various reasons, including economic opportunity, underemployment in their countries of origin, and a desire to escape political oppression. Although modern North America is now populated by adherents to all of the world's religions, as well as secular atheists and agnostics, one should never underestimate the key role played by the Bible in the early Judeo-Christian foundation and later development of the continent's post-contact period. Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his views on the history of this remarkable book. In this special episode, we examine the Old Testament as we begin our deep survey of the Bible, a book that greatly shaped the colonization of North America.
1: What is the Bible? Set aside the New Testament for the moment. What is the Old Testament? That depends on who you ask. Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, and the Church of the East all include different books in their canons. A Catholic Bible has more books than a Protestant Bible, a Greek Orthodox Bible has yet more books. The Russian Orthodox throw in a few extras, and the Bible of the Church of the East is a veritable IKEA catalogue. There's really no such thing as the Bible. The concept only makes sense if you ask, whose Bible? Each faith has its own definition of the canon of books. How each arrived at its canon is a process lost to time, although we often know when each faith locked down its sacred books. Not only do the faiths disagree about the books to be included, but they also argue about the content of those books about which is the legitimate textual tradition. The Jews call the Old Testament the Tanakh, which is an acronym of its three divisions, Torah, Nevim, and Ketuvim. There is no good English equivalent for Torah, although at a stretch you could use law or instruction. Nevim can be translated as prophets, and Ketuvim as the dull term writings. It seems this threefold division dates back to the 2nd century BC, when Israel was a client state in the Hellenistic empires founded after Alexander the Great. The Torah contains five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the very heart of the Bible. These were the first books to be accepted as holy in the Jewish community. Nevim, Prophets, is divided in two, former and latter. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings. Here you'll find the sagas of Joshua and Saul and David and Solomon, the stories of Elijah and Elisha and all the history of the Jews from the conquest of Canaan to the fall of the kingdom of Judah. The second section, Latter Prophets, consists of the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and one book called the Twelve, which contains all the prophets from Hosea to Malachi. Both Torah and Nevim had become authoritative by the time of the Maccabean Revolt in 167 BC, the independence movement that led to a short-lived Jewish kingdom before the Romans took over. By that time, the standing of the Torah was unquestioned. It was universally agreed that the prophetic tradition had ended with Malachi, who wrote during the Persian period when the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. The final section of the Tanakh, Ketuvim, Writings, is a motley collection. Daniel, Ezra, Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and the group called the Five Scrolls, or Megalote. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. The Five Scrolls are each read out at a major festival. Song of Songs is read during Passover. Ruth at Shavuot, the Festival of Weeks. Lamentations at Tishabav. Ecclesiastes during Sukkot. Tabernacles. And Esther during Purim. Ketuvim also includes Daniel and the books of Ezra and Chronicles. Ketuvim was the last collection to become authoritative. The rabbis had serious reservations about certain books that were eventually included, notably Daniel, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. On the other hand, numerous other documents held spiritual authority and bid fair to be included in any authoritative collection of Hebrew scriptural texts. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that while the Jews were governed by the Persians, then later the Greeks, there was a creative explosion of writings. The books of Maccabees. The Wisdom of Ben Bensidic, Tobit, Judith, the Books of Enoch, Baruch, Jubilees, the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, dozens and dozens of them written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. The rabbis believe that most of these are actually late Christian inventions. What the Dead Sea Scrolls prove was that the rabbis were wrong in that regard, that all the extra-canonical books had Hebrew originals and that they were highly regarded in at least some Jewish communities. And the scrolls also proved that the Jewish canon was in flux at the time the scrolls were written. Which book made it into the writings was decided in the 2nd century AD, at the height of the Roman Empire, after the Romans had crushed a great revolt in the province of Judea in 70 AD. The criteria for inclusion are uncertain, but we can perhaps find three. A book was included only if it was written in Hebrew, although dashes of Aramaic were allowed. Then the book had to be old, and to be old it had to be authored by a great figure from the past. Ecclesiastes squeaked in because its author was thought to be solemn, even though it contained dubious theology. Likewise with the Song of Songs. Finally, the rabbis rejected some books because they were beyond the pale. Maccabees, for example, taught that you could pray for the dead. And some books supported the views of the emerging Christian community far too much for the rabbis' liking. Their result was a canon of 24 books. The Christians ended up with all the books the Jews considered sacred, and many of they did not. And for that, we have to thank the Septuagint. The Septuagint is one of the two great textual traditions behind the Bible. The first, and most important, is called the Masoretic tradition of texts. The Masoretes were Jewish scribes and scholars who worked in the Middle East between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century AD. They took it upon themselves to copy the biblical texts with great care, to preserve them from generation to generation. It was absolutely critical to them that the Torah be preserved exactly as it was from the days of Moses himself, for it was the Word of God. A single error of transcription, a single letter wrong, was a sin. They faced fearsome problems. Hebrew, like its related languages Phoenician and Canaanite, has only consonants and no vowels. The first language to use vowels in its alphabet was Greek. If English were the same, the letters BT could mean bit, or but, or bet, or bat, or about, for that matter. Why God blessed the Jews with such a defective writing system is a question no doubt best left to the rabbis. Things would have been a lot simpler if the Maserets had photocopiers or digital media. The Maserets were concerned that Hebrew was fading as a spoken language. They also wanted a system that would help them copy the biblical texts with absolute accuracy. The Ben Asher family invented a way of marking vowels, and also marking accents and musical notes that Jews could use when the text was chanted in the synagogue. They invented a set of symbols to aid copyists. These symbols gave the scribe copying the text information about unusual forms or words that should not be changed. For instance, they might put a circle over a word that occurred nowhere else in the Bible. In the margin, they would then put a letter which told the scribe, yes, this is a unique word, but it is not an error, so just copy it the way it is. The notes at the top or bottom of a page would usually give more information about the symbols in the side margins. The oldest copy of the Masoretic text of the Tanakh we have is called the Leningrad Codex, written in 1009 AD. It is called a codex because it is a book rather than a scroll. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was the oldest Hebrew text known. It is used as the basis for almost all printed editions of the Tanakh and is regarded as the definitive text, capping over a thousand years of scribal copying. The second great textual tradition, the Septuagint, which means roughly 72, is the name given to a translation of the Hebrew canon into Greek, begun in the Egypt of King Ptolemy II in about 270 BC, some 50 years after the death of Alexander the Great. Hebrew had always been the language of a small community. For centuries, Jewish traders and intellectuals had also spoken Aramaic, the lingua franca of the entire Middle East. By 270 BC, Hebrew was fading as the language of everyday Jewish life, although it survived as the language of schooling and liturgy. Think Latin. The Greeks brought a new common language and the need for a new translation. The historian Josephus relates the origin of the Septuagint, quoting at length from what is almost certainly a fictitious letter from a Greek author called Aristaeus to his brother Philocrates. But who worries about fiction when a good story is being told? According to the letter of Aristaeus, Ptolemy wrote to Jerusalem, King Ptolemy sends greeting to the high priest Eleazar. Since there are many Jews settled in our realm who were carried off from Jerusalem by the Persians at the time of their power, and many more who came with my father into Egypt as captives, and I, when I ascended the throne, adopted a kindly attitude towards all my subjects, and more particularly to those who were citizens of yours. Now since I am anxious to show my gratitude to these men and to the Jews throughout the world, I have determined that your law shall be translated from the Hebrew tongue into the Greek language, that these books may be added to the other royal books in my library. It will be a kindness on your part if you will select six elders from each of your tribes, men of noble life and skilled in your law, and able to interpret it, that in questions of dispute we may be able to discover the verdict in which the majority agree the investigation is of the highest possible importance. End quote.
0: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now, 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
1: The high priest was more than happy to oblige. He sent 72 scholars to Alexandria to each translate the entire Torah, a task they finished in 72 days. Legend later had it that each translation was found to be identical, thus sanctifying the godly enterprise. From that number of scholars and of days, we have the text's name, the Septuagint, 72. Other Hebrew texts were translated in the decades after, and came to form the first great written version of the Bible. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the manuscripts we had of the Septuagint were by far the oldest version of the Bible in existence. It became enormously influential because it established the concepts needed to render Jewish thought into the more cosmopolitan language of Greek, which would become the second language of the Roman Empire. And the Septuagint remained a lasting inspiration. With its aid, Alexandrian Jews became the only people to produce a Greek literature rivalling the output of the Greeks themselves in size and range. For the first time, Jewish ideas had a way to penetrate into non-Jewish cultures. The Septuagint became the Bible of choice to the huge number of Jews in Alexandria, in place of the Hebrew texts that most could not read. For many Jews, it was the only Bible they knew. It was the version that the writers of the New Testament quoted from, but it contained a number of books that the rabbis would later decide should not be in the Masoretic canon. These included Tobit, Judith, 1 and 2 Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ben Sira, also known as Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, Baluch, and longer versions of Esther and Daniel. The Church eventually accepted this larger canon, although there was argument for centuries whether to include books omitted from the Masoretic text. The Church also reorganised the Tanakh. The Torah remained intact, the five most sacred books. The former prophets in Nevim, Joshua de Kings, became known as the historical writings. To this section the Church added Ruth, Ezra and Chronicles, which the Jews, deeply unimpressed by all three, had relegated to Ketuvim, the writings. The Church kept the division of the latter prophets in Nevim, but added to it the book of Daniel and the books of Baruch and Lamentations, on the grounds that these were associated with the prophet Jeremiah. The rest of the Ketuvim, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Esther, became known as the wisdom literature. The Church also split each of the books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles and Ezra into two, and divided the single book of the twelve prophets into, well, twelve. This gives us the 46 books found in the modern Catholic Old Testament. The Orthodox canons have a few more books 1 Esdras, also known as 3 Esdras, the Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151, and 3 and 4 Maccabees. And finally, Russian Orthodox Bibles throw in 2 Esdras, which is also known as 4 Esdras, or sometimes as 3 Esdras. The Septuagint is the basis of all Orthodox Bibles, not only for deciding the books of the canon but also for the actual text, which sometimes disagrees with the Masoretic text, even when taking into account that the Septuagint is a translation into Greek. Samuel, Jeremiah, Daniel and Esther are markedly different, and there are curious variations scattered through Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua and Kings. Other Christians and the Jews favour the Masoretic text. The Bible used by Catholics until the middle of the 20th century was the Vulgate, a translation that St. Jerome made from Hebrew into Latin in the dying years of the Roman Empire, around the year 400 AD. He decided to use the best Hebrew texts he had and to ignore the Septuagint as much as possible. He'd already tried to translate the Greek Septuagint into Latin, but threw up his hands in disgust. Why make a translation of a translation when the Hebrew books were ready to hand? By the time Jerome wrote, the Jews had long rejected the Septuagint as riddled with error. Christians and Jewish Christians made too much trouble by finding irksome passages in the Septuagint that annoyed the Jewish scholars. Those Greek passages just had to go. Jerome knew quite well that the Septuagint contained books not in the Tanakh. He included these books in the Vulgate, but he wasn't happy about it. Jerome was wary of any book he could not find in Hebrew. He called them Apocrypha, Greek for hidden, although there is nothing hidden about them. But his fan base demanded translations of all the books of the Septuagint. Even those for which no version in Hebrew existed. Catholics and the Orthodox now call the books that so vexed Jerome the Deuterocanonicals, the second canon, but certainly not second rate. They appear in Catholic English printed Bibles interspersed with the rest of the Old Testament. Wisdom of Solomon and Silak are placed after Song of Songs in the wisdom literature, and Balak, named after Jeremiah's scribe, is placed with the prophets after Jeremiah and Lamentations. In the New American Bible, revised edition, Tobit. Judith, Esther, and the books of Maccabees are placed into a section coyly labelled Biblical Novellas, between the historical books and the wisdom literature. Protestants use Jerome's term and call these books the Apocrypha, implying they are, indeed, second-rate and rather suspect. If they appear in printed Protestant Bibles at all, they appear as a single block between the Old and New Testaments. You can thank Martin Luther for that. He thought the apocryphal books supported everything he detested, indulgences and the notion of purgatory. Citing St. Jerome, he returned to the canon of the Tanakh in his German translation of the Bible in 1534. The new faiths of the Reformation followed suit. In the English-speaking world, 70 years after Luther's Bible, the tremendously influential King James Version of 1611 placed the apocryphal books in a separate section. Few English-language Protestant Bibles include them today. The Anglican churches are a little more flexible and permit the apocryphal books to be used for instruction, but not as a source of doctrine. Passages from Baloch and Siloch are even included in the weekly readings, the lectionaries. Catholics reserve the term Apocrypha for the least popular texts, the ones found only in Greek or Slavonic Bibles 3 and 4 Maccabees, the Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151, and 1 and 2 Esdras, or 3 and 4 Esdras, depending how you count. So we have two textual traditions, the Masoretic and the Septuagint, which is the real one, the one that shows us the authentic Bible as it was written. Jews are absolutely insistent that the Masoretic text is the word of God and cannot be changed by a single letter, even when the Hebrew makes no sense. 1 Samuel 13.1, for example, says, Saul was years old upon his becoming king, and for years he reigned as king over Israel. This makes no sense as it stands, since the numbers are missing before the two words years. This verse is not in the Septuagint at all, which starts chapter 13 of verse 2. It was partly to clear up such confusions that the Masoretes constructed their system of marginal comments. In Jewish communities, the Hebrew text has always been central, even when many Jews did not understand the Hebrew. Those who translated the text produced a version that was markedly influenced by Hebrew phrasing, idiom and syntax. Judaism insists on preserving some familiarity with the Hebrew text and language, This explains the prominence of Jewish versions that display the Hebrew and English on facing pages. Even when the Hebrew is not physically present, it is typically brought to the reader's attention through numerous notations and references, and this my Jewish Study Bible does, with extensive commentary on every page. Orthodox Christians argue that the Septuagint preserves the oldest and most reliable tradition. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, their argument had indeed some force since the oldest manuscripts of the Septuagint dated back to the late Roman Empire, 500 years older than the oldest Masoretic manuscripts. If the Septuagint was good enough for the Gospel writers, the Orthodox argue, it is good enough for the faithful. And the Orthodox also contend that the Septuagint is the inspired word of God, and that where the Masoretic text differs, it is because of Jewish tampering. I suppose that tampering is one way to describe it, but it's not a helpful one. Dozens of versions of the biblical books floated around the Greek states and later the Roman Empire, as the Dead Sea Scrolls attest. There was no such thing as a correct version, although most Jews and Christians felt that somewhere out there was an ideal and perfect text. But in the end, the compilers of the Septuagint used the manuscripts they in fact used, and so did the scribes who worked on the Masoretic texts. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls follow the Masoretic tradition, but there are also scraps that follow the Septuagint, and scraps that follow neither. The scant texts we find a few generations after the Dead Sea Scrolls all follow the Masoretic tradition, which leads us to believe that the text of each book had gelled by 150 AD, the height of the Roman Empire. Where the Jews and the Eastern Orthodox are inflexibly adamantine about the authenticity of their own textual traditions, the Protestants and Catholics are much more relaxed. The New American Bible, Revised Edition, is based on the Masoretic text, but its compilers also went to the Septuagint and to the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they felt those provided better readings. In Christianity, translation was present from the start. Although Jesus spoke Aramaic, his words were preserved and disseminated in Greek. Translation was fundamental to Christianity from the very beginning, an essential part of its mission to bring its holy scriptures to the Greek and Latin speakers of the Roman Empire.
0: Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, Timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calotrin promotes better sleep Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.